Equity is our labor of love. From humble beginnings in the back corner of our old office at 410 Townsend to the remote work world of today, for the past four years, Equity has been TechCrunch's flagship podcast for news on early stage rounds, seed stage startups, what's up with the biggest unicorns, and of course, the hottest IPOs. We've talked to dozens of VCs, recorded hundreds of episodes, and covered the biggest stories in the world of startups and venture capital, all so that you can stay informed. Now, we get asked all the time, how can people support the show? Well, the best thing you can do is to subscribe to Extra Crunch. If you do, you'll support Equity and you'll get access to things like our best reporting, the Extra Crunch live series, deep dives into sectors, investor surveys, and of course, my daily column, The Exchange. You can sign up at techcrunch.com slash subscribe and use the discount code equity. We appreciate you and your support of the show all these years. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined this week by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, how are you? I am good. I'm excited that we're done with early stage, going back to EC Live and we got Disrupt coming up. Uh, so other than that, we're all very relaxed and nothing's going on internally. We're also joined today by Natasha Mascarenas, one of our early stage venture capital reporters. Natasha, how are you? I am delightful. Just happy to be winding down the week, honestly. Yeah, it's uh, it's Thursday at three o'clock on the East Coast and I can see the descent into Saturday if I just can get like four or five more things done. So I'm pretty happy about that. Speaking of things we've got done, however, this week had an extra episode of Equity. So if you are listening to this on Friday morning, there is an extra episode in there about SPACs. Danny, what is a SPAC and why do we talk about them? We've been talking about them because they've become really popular. So SPACs are blank check companies. Instead of doing like a venture capital firm, which is also a form of a blank check vehicle, SPACs are publicly traded. And so they go and find a company to buy. They buy it. And as soon as they buy it, that company is now publicly trading. It's a way to go around the traditional IPO process, which we all know is a bit unpopular among certain Silicon Valley types, given some, I don't know, let's call them pricing discrepancies that you might see between IPO prices and first day performance. Uh, also in the news this week, uh, after we recorded that show, sadly, we finished it and then the news dropped, uh, Airbnb has been approached by a possible blank check company. Now, we don't know if Airbnb is actually going to pursue that option. Given how much expensive capital they brought on this year, they probably want to go raise a bit more, but it is a possibility for them. And of course, uh, oh, actually, one more thing. We do have a neat slideshow of notes on SPACs we're going to put in the show notes over on TechCrunch. So check out the po- the show post. That's how it's called. The show post for those notes. And you may read them and you'll learn stuff. Good. Now, we're doing something different this week. We're talking about a theme instead of just kind of like an individual news item. So we want to talk about the resilience of tech. And if you've been tracking the U.S. economy and the really the pandemic economy, I suppose, and COVID-19 and this kind of current era, you might have been surprised by how well major and smaller tech companies are doing. To illustrate the situation, I want to start with some economic data. So Danny, if you could just talk us through a little bit about what we've learned recently about the state of the economy, that'll be a good grounding point for us to begin. Well, I mean, there's a couple of trends, right? So there's been this split between the stock market and the labor economy, right? So the stocks keep going up. NASDAQ hit new highs at certain points. Individual stocks have hit you know, all-time highs and, and records. But at the same time, the labor economy is, is worse than ever. So just uh, on, on Thursday, yesterday, we had another 1.4 million new jobless claims, mostly uh, due to the fact that we're going through the second COVID wave, you know, all across the country. We have new highs in Florida, in Texas, in California. And so there's this divergence. But what's nuts is over here in tech land, where we focus on, 
you know, outside of, I, I think LinkedIn had a, a reasonably small layoff, about 6%, it was just shy of a thousand folks laid off from LinkedIn. Um, there hasn't been a lot of layoffs, like overall in the tech economy. It seems that tech has been extraordinarily resilient in the face of coronavirus. We haven't seen thousands of companies disappear, you know, hundreds of thousands of job losses like we've seen elsewhere uh, in the American economy, at least. And so that's one of the reasons why we want to talk about this today. We did see, if you go back in time, some startup layoffs, and I think we covered those on TechCrunch, but certainly we've seen instead a return to strength. And Natasha, I was hoping you could talk us through a little bit about the, um, the, the signals that we're seeing that make tech look strong, both at startup scale and also at big tech. Yeah, totally. It feels good to be an optimist in tech right now because there's so many anecdotes to tie it to. Um, I think the most obvious one is that if you look at it, a lot of venture-backed startups have powered each of our own pandemic, whether that's Instacart or or Zoom. For, for all that we shit on hyper-growth mentality, they're the ones that have been able to show up for hyper-growth needs. So I think that's that's been an obvious one. The thing I've been hearing from investors this week um, which is self-serving, but they said that venture capital is an asset class that is not going to be going away anytime soon. And we see that in the totals and in the checks that are being written. And I think that's just because people are seeing that tech has been the solution more than maybe our federal government. Even with PPP loans, Chime was giving them out. Um, and it seemed a little bit more um, sane than going straight to the government. So I think there's a bunch of different reasons and hypotheses as to why it's resilient. And we're seeing it in action. So uh, it, we were thinking about this as a group when we were kind of playing the show out yesterday, and uh, it kind of falls into two kind of buckets. The reason why tech seems to be doing better than expected. Because if you go back to March, everyone was like, it's chaos, it's the end, this is a black swan event, tech is over, VC is kaput, everyone's going to die. And then by by June, you know, venture capital was obviously very active and rounds were getting more competitive and so forth. So two things that kind of stick out. One is the acceleration of the digital transformation. Now, if your eyes just glazed over, go with us here. Digital transformation, we know, has been an overused and maybe even abused uh, catchphrase, buzzword, whatever, but it's actually happening in every tech company that you talk to that sells software, that companies use, says that companies have been forced to jump forward in how they are digitizing their business. And the other part of that, which is kind of the same thing through different lenses, software eating the world. This is an old Andreessen line, Danny, right? Danny's, Danny's nodding. You can't see that, but I'll tell you he's nodding. So he's nodding. Yes, I got that right. And uh, it seems to be happening. We're seeing a lot of things that used to be done by fax or by, by any other non-digital method move there via software. So it seems like instead of the tech being ancillary to the economy like it was back in 2000 and therefore gets shut down when the economy gets shut down, tech is increasingly central and therefore it, it didn't get cut from budgets. It instead was actually increased in terms of its, its share of the pie. I was talking to Low Tony over at Plexo Capital during early stage this week. And I asked him, I said, what is your risk appetite for a startup that is fixing a problem versus telling you an opportunity right now? And when he said that he was still interested in hearing about those opportunity ideas, not, not the must-haves, but the want-to-haves, the would-be-cool-to-haves, it signaled to me that, you know, yeah, we're not only is tech in a position to be like leaned on, but it's also in a position where people are still excited about like being surprised at fun, quirky new ideas. Like it's not like we're just looking at it as a band-aid. We're looking at it as like much more. So Natasha's point is actually very, very good. We compiled a, a piece on Boston's startup ecosystem this week, looking at kind of the data in the in the, in the city. And we had talked to, you know, Boston area VCs back in, I think it was May, Natasha, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And they were all, you know, concerned to very concerned is how I kind of summarize them. 
And then if you look at actually what happened in Boston's uh, startup world in Q2, there was an all-time record amount of money invested since at least like 2016 or something. So a kind of blowout quarter contra to the expectations. And that's kind of the story we keep seeing around this, the tech slash mostly software world. And guys, have you watched earnings so far from technology companies in the last couple of days? I have not. Okay. Well, let me, let me catch you up. Um, we've seen surprisingly strong results. Again, like it's a pandemic. It is a recession. And yet Microsoft grew by 13% year over year, reported kajillions of dollars in net income. Azure was up like 47%. So from the startups to the VCs to the big tech, we're seeing a relatively resilient world. And one last little thing on this acceleration thing, Natasha, uh, we wrote about extension rounds as an offensive weapon. I was hoping you could give us a thumbnail about this new trend in which VCs are trying to give out extra toys to fast growing companies. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, we started seeing companies that had raised maybe in January, raising a new bit of capital from the same investors called an extension round. And usually I like literally have said to emails, I'm not going to write on this story because it's just an extension round. And then all of a sudden it became so many companies pitching the same thing that we were like, okay, there must be something here. And the, the distilled version of what investors told us is that the, the best companies are now being approached more than before because investors want to to bet on that and are able to attract capital even easier. It's kind of like the separating startups into two buckets yet again, the, the, the best are getting bigger and the ones that maybe don't have the growth yet probably don't have the capital either. So, I mean, that's, I guess, the less optimistic and less resilient version of the story we were saying earlier, because it, it does take away some of the seed excitement and just puts it towards the late stage companies that have been doing it for a while. Winner's going to win. In fact, in my inbox today, there was a company called Turbo Systems that announced a Series A extension today on the back of 70% sequential quarter revenue growth. And that's the kind of story that we're seeing. Companies that are going more quickly are attracting more capital. But this goes even into the VC world, Danny. Forerunner put together uh, the, the half a billion dollars in capital for their funds this week. And they didn't talk to us about it, which we're mad about. But what's going on with the VC world? No, I mean, obviously, uh, I, I think when we were talking in March, right, we talked about the denominator effect, the fact that a bunch of LPs would kind of pull funding, kind of, they can't legally push a company not to a, a VC fund to actually invest money that they've already committed, but they could put pressure through the LPAC, the, the Limited Partner Advisory Committee, say, hey, you know, don't, don't invest all the money, hand some of it back, you know, help us balance our books. And I don't think we've seen that. You know, one part of that is, other asset classes, the stock market, bonds have actually held up much stronger than people expected. Housing prices have not decreased at all. In fact, existing home sales were up 21%. It's actually a robust housing market right now. And so I, I think that, you know, for firms, you know, Forerunner obviously raised a half a billion. We've had a bunch of Summit Partners raised a 2.2 billion, if I recall, from a while back across two funds. There's just a lot of money still out there. And I, I think the story here, in a lot of ways, is, is really a story of inequality. You know, again, the winners are winning. The best startups are doing super well. Tech as an industry is really, really strong compared to tourism, travel, airlines, a bunch of others. So it's drawing more and more capital in. And then on the labor side, I mean, we're going to talk about dumpling and some of the gig economy workers going out there. But again, you see, uh, you know, the top startups doing fine. As I was talking to one VC recently, they talked about um, investing behind post-economic people. And what they meant was, is that they're looking for folks who, um, you know, have enough cash on their own balance sheet so that they don't have to worry about the economics of the world going on around them. And I thought that was both both like shocking, but also interesting. Like at the end of the day, if you have 10 million bucks, like what do you care about the coronavirus? Like how does it affect you in any way if you have liquid cash? Uh, I don't think, I mean, if I, let's just be honest here, if I had $10 million in cash, one, I wouldn't talk to you two. 
And um, I also wouldn't talk to any because because I wouldn't talk to anybody because I would just be ensconced in a mountain of books and like I, I guess like I don't know cold cans of Coca Cola. Like I, I would just I'd be, I would be gone, not founding a company, which is why I'll never be rich. That's an um, inspiring vision of the future. Danny, I have a question on this idea of a post economic company. So is was was the investor saying something like they don't need to raise anymore? Like we we want our portfolio companies to kind of say conservative or does it feel like it's not conservative uh, to be clear a post-economic founder so what they meant was basically backing rich people to start companies right so don't back folks who you know have limited means who you know need to worry about putting food on the table um, there's much more opportunity to invest behind people who are already rich i i was also hearing from a lot of first-time fund managers and i i struggle to ask someone seriously how are you de-risking yourself when they have a stacked angel investing portfolio have done it for years. And I'm just like, oh, this is not de-risking for you. And you're, I think you're kind of faking what you're saying in terms of I need to de-risk myself. Like you didn't just end up with 500 billion with a, with a cold pitch deck. No, I want to, I want to summarize what we're talking about. So just to bring all these different data points back, back to kind of square one for everyone who's just listening to this, like when the pandemic began in the U S the expectation was an ice age. And what we've seen instead is an acceleration in the use of software and digital tooling across a huge cohort of, of companies. This is now an American focused story, but probably true everywhere. Uh, even industries that are struggling, like the cruise ship industry, several VCs have told me that they're buying more software than ever to prep for a return to form. So an acceleration of the digital transformation, software eating the world, pushing a large chunk of the startup and mature technology company world forward creating a odd economic situation in which people are unemployed and the economy is bad, but the stock market is now 50% tech companies and doing great because they're crushing it. Just to wrap this up before we go into some early stage rounds, there are two things on the horizon that are making me worried. And I, um, if I can get it past Henry Picavet, uh, who kind of like runs a lot of TC's content, we'll see if I can get it on the website. But he here's the idea. Microsoft and Twitter reported it in the last uh, couple of days. And Microsoft's Bing search engine had a pretty lackluster quarter. It grew 1%. That could bode poorly for, for Google, maybe. We'll see. And Twitter posted year-over-year -year revenue declines. And that could bode poorly for Facebook. So there's a couple of things out there that are making me a little bit worried. Of course, we are not in the prognostication game. We're in the talking about it game. But just something to keep in the back of your mind as earnings roll through. Those are both next week. Stay cool. Um, let's pivot and talk about some younger companies, starting off with a very controversial startup named after one of my favorite foods, Dumpling. Yes. Yeah, so Dumpling raised a Series A led by four runner ventures who did not brief us about their most recently closed fund. But the company's basic pitch is that they're going to make Instacart shoppers their own mini Instacarts. And what that means is they're going to migrate gig workers off of the big tech companies that they've been working um, working with and and bring more ownership to the model and i think there are a lot of their success so far they've they, they raised they have 2000 shoppers across all 50 states is is coming from the fact that the gig economy has kind of felt a front during the pandemic in in the lack of support the protests the tip baiting the the amount of scandals, um, Instacart obviously is still raising money through these scandals, but I think that Dumpling is an example of how negative shopper sentiment could lead to a company starting, Alex. Okay, so this is not like Dumpling's helping a grocery store put together its own Instacart thing. This is helping like Danny become Danny Inc., set up his own LLC and deliver groceries around, you know, Brooklyn, right? 
Yeah. So Danny LLC will basically curate his own shopper network. And one way shoppers have been doing it is they'll work for Instacart, give a little notice saying, hey, I work for Dumpling now, and then take that Dumpling, take that person off of Instacart and onto Dumpling. And then they'll set their own rates, set their own hours, et cetera, et cetera. I think the, I think the hope here, you know, is that Instacart, you don't know who's actually shopping for you. So if you have specific dietary needs, let's say you're a keto focused person or a vegetarian, or you have, you have a certain like, uh, aesthetic or taste style in, in, in your shopping. And so, you know, a lot of folks complain on Instacart that when uh, an item is not available on the shelves, the substitutes aren't as good. Sometimes you can select them. Sometimes they don't really follow your guidance and you're getting kind of the products you didn't want. The idea here, I think, is you pay a little bit more of a premium, I think is ultimately what the idea is. And you get a higher margin customer paying more for delivery, which is higher quality. And so there's a little bit of like, I would guess you would call it a race to the top. I, I completely agree. I feel like it's for a specific kind of person that wants to know their shopper. And if the pandemic continues, which it seems like it will, maybe they maybe you want a more personal relationship. The, the big caveat here, though, is that the gig economy, based on data I pulled out from, I think, a Federal Reserve report, a really, really small percent of the gig economy wants to be a business owner or uses it as their primary source of income. So Dumpling's basically betting that it could still pitch throughout, even despite the fact that there isn't as much of an audience for it. It's big pitches that will give you more money, but we can't ignore the fact that people come to the gig economy for flexibility and, an, and a, you know, a built-in market, built-in customers. Dumpling's kind of going to make you do more work to get the same benefits. It, it seems, though, that like Dumpling is therefore going after the most active Instacarters, probably, right? The people that are the best at it, that want to keep doing it, that are willing to invest their time and energy into it through guerrilla tactics that I'm sure Instacart would have loved for itself when it was small, but now must hate because it's now that it's the incumbent. I don't really get dumpling, guys. I'm not going to lie. It seems like a lot of work to make maybe marginally more money and a lot of bother. Like making an LLC is a step. That's legit. That's paperwork. That's process. But if it does do well, I will read that as people are very peeved with Instacart. And if it does very poorly, I will put it as Instacart had sufficient labor, a labor pool to, to, to pull from that it could do kind of whatever it needed to do to, to stay afloat and still hire uh, or work with gig economy workers. So I, I'm fascinated by this. Six and a half million is enough to do a lot of damage, we presume. So it should get uh, enough cash and runway to kind of run out its thesis, Natasha, right? Yeah, I think so. The Another caveat to list on is that... Um, you know, some of the people on the dumpling app, some of the shoppers are like, well, we'll do errands for you now. And that's kind of how the founders are thinking about the future growth of the app is like, your shopper can do anything for you. you can pick up your laundry, pick up your Chipotle on the way home for picking up your groceries and your laundry. And I don't know, you guys have been covering tech longer than I have. There is a startup that whose name escapes me that did something like this, like a task. Us, task? Well, we had Alfred, which was a battlefield winner in I want, 2012, 2013, seven, eight I was, years ago. That I was, was at TC at the time, I think. So it would have been 2013, 14? Yeah, something Somewhere like that. There. More. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like those were problematic companies in the past because it's like... Well, the, the challenge with all gig economy workers at some point is, look, you can have amazing service if you pay for it. I mean, if you're a billionaire and you have people, you know, uh, paid a quarter million dollars a year to go handle all this stuff, they'll do it really, really well. They'll make sure every organic... Apple is handcrafted and selected. It's always a cost, you know, every single time it comes down to cost. And I think the magic here, you know, what we heard is dumpling is, is making uh, a dumpling shopper makes on average $33 in average earnings per order compared to just a couple of bucks on Instacart. Mm. And, and my, my mentality here is I think dumpling just picking off the best customers off of Instacart, right? <sighs> They're going to pick these folks who have $300 Whole Foods orders, 
Maybe they have a, fa a huge family. They have a lot of requirements. So they're willing to pay. Hey, I don't have to drag four kids to the store, have them run around knocking over the strawberries department. I'm yelling at the, you know, the you know, general manager of the store. Now there's the police involved. People are fighting. No one's wearing a mask. Everyone gets COVID. What world is this? Is there a just, strawberry department? What the, and there's, there's cops? What's, what happens when you go to the store, Danny? Whole, Whole Foods is a, it's, it's a minefield out there, Alex. It, it's, uh, you're probably easier to cross North Korea. Uh, but nonetheless, I think there is a, a, a sense of there are customers who will pay more. And I think yeah. Dumpling is saying, look, why don't we pull off some of the most profitable customers off of Instacart? And second, look, if, if most Instacart shoppers are not happy with Instacart, they can't control uh, their hours, they can't control their yeah. money, a lot of folks are ready to go. So my, my guess is, is that Instacart will, will improve the quality of life for their shoppers because they may lose some of their best shoppers. And that will be what's interesting in the dynamic you know, competitively here is whether Dumpling can handle that or not. Speaking of quality of life, I am moving soon and my quality of life will be suitcase vibes for um, at least two weeks until I land in Jersey. Uh, Danny, I understand a company raised to make van life a thing. So can you take us through Kibbo? Yeah. So this is, this is part of the let's torture Danny section of this podcast in which I have been uh, entrusted with talking about glamping, which is one of those things that just the word itself pisses me off um, as someone who appreciates even the bastardization of English. But, but Kibbo is trying to do glamping for RVs and specifically for trailer parks. And so, you know, there's probably an image you have in your head of the American trailer park. It's the single wide versus double wide. And if you don't know what that is, that means you've never actually been in a trailer park. But the idea of Kibbo is to actually soup it up. So they have a, a sort of virtual velvet rope line. They, they do applications. And the idea is to create intentional communities around trailer parks. They select locations all across the country in very nice national parks private land, it's about $1,000 a month per person, or, or I should say like maybe per van, something like that, to rent. And you can also rent the van itself. So the location's 1000 a month, the van itself is 1000 a month. And the idea here is that in a coronavirus-infected world, a lot of folks want to get out of big cities, they're roaming around like uh, Buffalo on the West, and uh, they want to settle down at a watering hole that hopefully has organic, keto-friendly dieting, etc. I didn't know Buffalo were, were, were vegetarian, keto-friendly. They're not when I eat them, at least. So a couple thoughts about this. One, I've been glamping because my partner, she likes that sort of thing. She can't hear this week's episode because she'll love this idea. And that tells me there's a market for it because people love to get out. They love to go see places. Like the, the American RV is different than the type of like RV you see in Europe, right? They have caravans. We have these massive buses and I think people love to drive around the States. And I think you're right. Danny. In a coronavirus world for 2K a month, this, this is like what, 30% the cost of like a, a nice apartment in Manhattan? Like it's cheap. That's right. And, and, the, and, and there's a co-living aspect to this as well. So um, at each of these locations, Kibbo is going to offer what was described in the article as common basic staples like coffee and snacks and a gym for congregating, which I assume includes some sort of Peloton or whatever that, that boxing startup we talked about last week. Um, the, so you can like- light. Light, that that one fit light box thing light, light box. boxer there you light go boxer. so close um well just to pull my early 20s card this sounds like a fantastic idea i think if you're in your 20s 30s in love and have no friends it is a great experience and hold the future of work card as well i think that if our companies aren't forcing us to come back and ours isn't at least now why not traipse around the country with the internet. safety of a small community. Internet, it, sure. Internet. internet. You have to have a fast connection. And if they, if they said, and there's fiber at the trailer park, I'm in. But 
they didn't say that. They didn't and say you, <laughs> the Wi-Fi may not be the best in uh, the middle of Utah. Yes, I mean, but, that'd be but... so dope, though. <laughs> we all we all laughed at HipCamp, and HipCamp surpassed 100 million in valuation. And I remember I laughed at HipCamp like three years ago, and I think that this is the next HipCamp. Well, and, and we've seen some other um, sort of camping focused ones. So there was one called Getaway Homes, which was doing sort of tiny homes on on properties. And and some of the magic of these businesses actually, once you're out of the big cities, out of the suburbs, land is really, really goddamn cheap. Like you can get prime land lakefront in the middle of nowhere, you know, a buck an acre. And uh, you can buy a buck, right? And And so when you have startup capital, it's like you can actually buy acres of land very cheaply. The question is, is can you get a utilities hookup and, and uh, you know, sanitation or whatever? Kippo sounds like they have a couple of different sites. It looks like they figured a lot of it out, but I think we should move on. Um, the next one we're going to talk about, though, uh, Alex, you, you, you focus on a company in the HR space. So talking about folks who are becoming remote, everything around work is changing. Tell us a little bit about Sora. So Sora is a startup that raised, well, kind of a collected $5.3 million dollars. A lot of companies that announce a seed round, really, it's kind of like a, a bunch of small investments kind of compiled into one big unit. So a journalist tip, if your people are telling you about a seed round, ask if it was all raised in the last chunk. 95% of the time, the answer is no. Anyways, they raised 5.3 million. It's a cool company. What Sora does is, okay, let me back up. Natasha, you just onboarded onto uh, Verizon and Verizon Media Group and TC a couple months ago, right? Yes. How how much fun, and be honest, no lying because we're on an official VMG podcast, uh, how much fun was that process? You're putting me in a really fun position here. It's my it fault, was a neutral po- It was a neutral experience. Like, I just had nothing to write home about. Okay. Slightly better than mine went. I think often what we see is with things like onboarding or other kind of HR things, there's a lot of different systems and tooling. So you end up with some Google Docs, some emails, a couple of texts, and it's a bit of a smorgasbord and a mess. What Sora wants to do is create a place where all your HR software can connect and you can put together cool little no-code workflows that allow information to pass between systems and they can set up little triggers to send you emails at the right time, connect you to the right people. And it's a cool way to make the H, the kind of the disparate, unconnected HR software world that we all have to deal with for work flow a lot better. So to me, it hits a lot of spots that I care about. One, it's making life better for workers, which is a theme that I really care about. Two, it's no-code-ish. Currently, it's kind of low-code and they're moving towards no-code. You might have to do like four lines of code to connect two things that don't quite talk to each other, but it's seed stage. It'll get there. And uh, also, I think it's SaaS. So it's kind of like all my favorite things in one bucket. I think it's super cool. I love to see companies try to like connect things that don't currently connect, like Plaid's done this and Twilio and so forth. Absolutely. I feel like... I'm always surprised and I always think it's me. I don't think it's the company ever, but I'm always like, why is this so hard to understand? And why does this require so much front loading effort and mind space from, from me? So um, good timing for them. Also, I feel like we, we like, like a broken record, we kind of talk about the startups that are, you know, not necessary at the moment, but might be in a couple of years. And this seems like one of those. Totally. And what was fun is uh, the CEO and co-founder, Laura Del Picaro, Beccaro, I should have asked, uh, Laura. Anyways, she actually walked me through the back end and showed me how it all works. And I love getting a demo. I'm a sucker for it because it means that like it's simple enough that you can explain to me in five minutes. And that was really cool to see. As a closing thought, guys, have you ever tweeted out the words no code and seen what happens to your Twitter account? Because is it like is it is it like talk, talking about crypto and then I get fifty crypto emails for the next like six hours? 
Yeah. If you tweet no code, you get DMs and tweets, and then you get a bunch of emails. And so like when I covered this company, I was just thinking about no code. So I wrote a little bit more about no code. People are obsessed. Like it is a whole thing. And I don't know if it's like eight people who really love it boosting this thing, or it's like the next big thing in tech, but certainly it is noisy. And so I'm curious if, uh, if we're going to talk about no code a lot in the next like, 18 I, I, I months. Think, you know, it, it's a simple answer, right? Which is we've had hundreds and hundreds of SaaS software companies come out. I mean, we ourselves, I mean, I don't know how many you have, Alex, but like I have access to 120 SaaS tools at, at work, right? Like in my big chart in the, the oh, single sign-on, yeah, like there's just thingy. dozens. Like yeah. we don't even know what any of this stuff does. We have access to it. Uh, you know, like what the hell is this stuff? But, but, you know, you go one step further. It's like, well, all these are their own verticals. How the hell do they all work together? That's supposedly no code. And so I, I can believe that there is a massive market to say, let's integrate product X, which I don't use, product Y, I don't use, and maybe I'll use the combo of those two products together in some sort of alchemy of excitement. But um, to me, there's just way too much coverage of something that is like really simple and basic. Like this has been going on for literally years, whether, whether, whether it was the enterprise service bus ESB programs back like 10 years ago, um, we've had things like Zapier that have done integrations, which aren't all that complicated. Um, I just, I, I'm like, when I read this, I was like, gee, you just kind of put the bumper sticker of no code on something and you're good to go. Yeah, I feel like no code or low code is the new AI. Like, it's just like, it doesn't really mean much or it doesn't excite me much. Um, but maybe I need to see some demos. I don't know. Everything's AI. Everything's no code. Everything's gig. I am, I am outraged at the last 30 seconds of commentary on this show because, because here's why I think it's cool. And I'm going to stay optimistic about it, even though you two are being reasonably full of hate and, and, and like, you know, <laughs> cynical, yeah. cynical, cynical. Thank cynical. you. I couldn't find the word talk. Natasha. Thank you for that. Experienced um, is the, I think the proper word, Alex. Mature. The reason why I'm going to stay naive and optimistic about this is this. I've seen a couple of companies now that are looking to build tooling and, and capabilities for groups and parts of companies that don't have access to a lot of engineering time. And the idea is to give them the ability to do more by themselves. They can go further without needing to bring in external dev teams or go begging to the engineering team to you know, please help us make a thing, which is always terrible. And we've all been there and it sucks. So I love the idea of giving people that can't write hardcore code, low code slash no code tooling to let them do more. And if we're going to empower more people to do cool stuff, I can't hate on it. It's just going to help my friends, you know? And so that's my point. Now, maybe Danny, you're right. Currently, maybe it's a little overhyped and so forth, but I'm going to stay optimistic. I, I'm optimistic. I, I think the, the big challenge, I, I, I'll be curious to see if we can overcome. You know, I, I program a lot of our data analytics infrastructure for TechCrunch. So connecting that's all the good. dots between all, uh, all of our like eight, again, all eight systems. How do you connect all the information to one place? So we have dashboards. There's a lot of no code actually built into that. Like a lot of it is actually out of the box. I can click and drag APIs and it does its work. There's always this last 3% mm -hmm. that you always need some sort of line of code. And I, I feel like that's the big gap here is like the HR service, if you're at a large company, should have an engineer dedicated to making the HR department function with all these different software tools. Inevitably, there's just going to be this, this chunk that's missing. And I, I think no code can solve like 98% of the challenges. It's always that last 2%, which by the way, is also what, what hurt AI in a lot of applications, right? AI works great uh, in many domains up to 95, 96, 97% accuracy. It's the last 3% that basically makes it useless. Well, that is, that's the market, the, the market, the market, there you go, people are going to shoot for. And we'll see if it works out. We, the show will be here in five years and we'll see who's right. But we have to wrap up a couple of uh, programming notes before we go. We're back on Monday, as always. 
I'm launching a newsletter this weekend. Sorry to self-promo on the show. It's called The Exchange. It's coming out on Saturday. If you go to techwrench.com slash newsletters and click on The Exchange and put your email in, you can get it. It's going to be cool. Thank you to the thousands of people that signed up. You're making me happy and making me look good internally. Thank you. And uh, I think that's it, guys. Natasha, Danny, a treat as always. We'll see you guys in a couple days.